You're listening to Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum. Rob, how are you, buddy? I'm good. It's been a long time. Dude, uh, was it the last episode that people were saying, where's Rob? Yeah, because you, you did an intro without did me. An intro without and then you. you didn't explain anything. I didn't explain that Rob was gone. Because, you know, sometimes these are out of order. Well, so and that's I, why I you need me here, because you, did, you don't missed know how it. to, ex- you you missed me. to explain things. You missed me. Yeah, I was... You wanted to be here. That was for Zachary Levi. Why can't was, you just say that you wanted to be here I wanted to me. be here. I wanted to be here for Zachary, but we were in Denver. Yeah, that's true. But And, uh, and it was the only thing I missed you. It's, it's lonely in this house. It's nice to have you here. I get a little lonely. I've been on Norco's. Yeah. Uh, you know, I get your I get your late night text. Po- post op, you know. But uh, li- I get your eleven a.m. <laughs> yo, yo, what's and up? I, I assume that's. Hey Rob, uh, as you know, I'm, I do the, the uh, camp no counselors thing. I didn't know that. What yeah, is that? Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, you do. Tell well, me more. Uh, you know, it's like summer camp. It's like for adults. And did uh, you say they went out of business? No, they didn't go back out of business. They're uh, they've got they're they're back in business. They're and, back, dude. It's pretty dope because I went with Macaulay Culkin last year. Name drop, but it's like you know, imagine all your meals, snacks, s'mores, accommodations, bedding, all that stuff, ropes course, swimming, hanging on the beach, open bar, no lines, round trip transportation, including New York and L.A. As and, well as parking and linens, it's just amazing, and it's like it's like being at camp, and it's affordable. You know how much my followers are going to get this for? Two thousand dollars, four hundred dollars, all inclusive for the Ooh. weekend. Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, you leave Sunday, four hundred freaking bucks, all inclusive. Uh, New York is the uh, May thirtieth to June second camp. Which one are you going to? I might go to a few of them. There's the New York camp, May thirtieth through June second. Uh, the Labor Day weekend, New York camp, August thirtieth through September second. The New York camp, September 19th to the 22nd. I know I'll be at the L.A. camp, September 26th to the 29th. Do you want to come with me? uh, Maybe. I'm bringing all my friends with me. So if anyone wants to hang out with Michael in a tent. Well, here's the great thing. It's not a a tent. You actually have a room. Oh, it's a cabin. You have a room. Some have air conditioning. But the thing is, like, people don't talk about the business. You're like, oh, what do you do? Oh, hey. It's more like hanging out with normal people. So, like, if you see me, you're like, hey, Rosenbaum, we'll just hang out and play sports. To get a discount on Camp No Counselors and how did you hear about Camp No Counselors, or CNC, if you write inside of you one word, you'll get the early bird price. That's $50 off registration. CNC, inside of you one word, you'll get a discount. $350 instead to hang out with could Michael be, in Could LA. be. Uh, I will be at one of these camps, if not more. Do you want to come with me? Would Natalie let you go to a summer camp with me? She would, she would let me go to a, She was going to let us go to the Sharks game. Dude, it's a blast. You would have a blast. But speaking of blast, I, I just watched the Netflix special. Our guest today, Anthony Jeselnik. He's a comedian. He's he's really dark, but when you watch him, for some reason, I found myself just... I, for some reason, the reason is because he's funny. There's those people who commit to what they're doing, and they're they're doing it, and that's how it is. He doesn't break his character. And he's for an hour... Brand. He's a great guest. We really get some insight. He talks about Amy Schumer dating her and like he's like you know it's like it happened i go you know you talk to her still he's like uh you'll have to listen to get some more insight but uh yeah don't give away that whole interview let's get inside anthony jeselnik it's my point of view you're listening to inside of you with michael rosenbaum Inside of You with Michael Rosenbaum was not recorded in front of a live studio audience. I did Bill Simmons' podcast a couple days ago. And afterwards, he's like uh, talking Game of Thrones. He's like, you watch Game of Thrones? I'm like, oh, yeah. And he's like, oh, he's like, when Arya killed the Ice King, go, I'm two episodes behind. 
And he froze. But you we just like no, right? no, no, no. Like of course not. And we we just like stared at each other for like a minute. That's got to be the worst feeling ever when someone gives you because you devote your life to Game of Thrones. I mean, that's an eight what eight years? Of course, but you have to watch day of like as it's airing. Yeah, otherwise, it, or, or don't go near social media. You can't even go on the internet. You can't all, go around it because every article is about it. Yeah, for sure. Have you ever had an episode ruined, like Red Wedding or something? No. Uh, with Game of Thrones, I've always watched everything on point. I remember one time when Homeland was a big thing. Oh yeah. I was talking to Jim Norton, and he's like, uh, "Oh, Homeland's amazing, right?" He's like, "Are you caught up?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And he's like, "What about this thing?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah. How about how they killed the vice president?" And he goes, "What?" And I go, "Are you not caught up?" And he's like, "No, I'm one behind." I'm like, "Then why would you ask me that?" I'm oh, sorry, I just spoiled it for you. <laughs> but you did this to yourself. We met at. Uh... I have a thing. Every time I name drop, I drop something. So we met at uh, Jason Reitman's house. Did you hear that phone? Who's Jason Reitman? He directed movies such as Up in the Air. Juno. Uh, the new Ghostbusters. His dad was Ivan Reitman, who directed the original Ghostbusters. Rob, should I continue? Well, that's enough. So I met you, and I was like, oh. I was surprised by how nice you were. I think that probably you get that a lot. Always. People Always. just assume... That you are the guy you portray on on, on the comedy specials, mm-hmm. the, the, and and rightly so. Like I don't think you're like wrong for thinking that. Like that's all. If that's all you've seen, of course you're going to you're going to think that. And even when I'm like being nice, it's still people are still kind of a little taken aback. Like I'm like a nice guy, but I'm still holding a knife. You know, the people <laughs> yeah. are just kind of a little uh, a little like, oh, he could still bite my head off at any time. But you do fuck with people. Mm-hmm. You, yeah. do you I mean, feel- I have a sense of humor, so yeah. Like I like <laughs> that's how I joke around is by <laughs> being kind of a jerk. But does it feel good to just like you feel like the first thing you want to do is when you meet someone is a, is it out of a sort of you think out of insecurity or like a power because you know you're good, you know you're smart and witty and you're a comedian that the first thing you think of is how do I give this guy a dig? Sometimes I, I can see like a like a weakness in someone where they're just like they're a little a little like a, timid, a little timid. So I'm going to play with that. And it's fine. I was telling people today, like, it's fun. Sometimes I'll, I'll get a waiter who I think recognizes me. So I'm like, let's have some fun. You know, I like, give them a story. You know what I mean? Oh, and I'll, yeah. they'll be like, when you have the specials, and I'm like, fuck you and your specials. And they're like, horrified. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you knew who I was. And this would be a funny <laughs> story for you to tell. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Can you keep it? Because the biggest thing, I've read some articles and like, there are some interviews. I read, did you read the Federalist interview? It wasn't, an, I didn't interview with them, but the, I read the article about the abortion thing. Yeah. yeah. And I thought it was kind of an ambiguous but positive review. They like me, but I didn't realize, like, when my last special came out, The Federalist was like, uh, Anthony Jeselnik, the headline was, Anthony Jeselnik is the greatest comedian who's ever lived. And I was like, yes, please. Like, I'll read, this is great. (laughs) And then I found out years later that The Federalist is like an alt-right publication. Like, they're not, they're not. Oh, is that what it is? Yes. It's an alt-right. Like, I I retweeted the abortion article, not even looking at who had written it. And someone was like, don't give these guys retweets. And I was like, what? And then I read it again. Right. And they give away a bunch of punchlines. And they're kind of like trying to figure out, they're like, he's not pro-choice or pro-life. And it's like, I'm very much pro-choice. Like, the bit is pro-choice. Right. Uh, You guys are kind of missing the point. Because they, you know, because it's like a, a what a 15 minute abortion story in the netflix special mm-hmm. yeah now a lot of people like it's you know because i watched it the first thing i did was like you know i was like, you gotta come to the podcast you're like yeah and i was like yeah i gotta do my homework man i gotta watch and I, I i was dying i was i liked it so much that i found myself and i don't do this a lot because there's a lot of specials there's mm-hmm. a lot of comedians there's i'm not saying they're all bad the specials but they're not all good yes and so 
from the get go, you're, you, there's there's jokes that I remember that I have to tell people, and that to me was a good sign. I, I, I text you something. I was in the plane, and I made this woman next to me watch it, who's a breast cancer doctor, and she was crying. She thought it was hysterical, you know. And I told her about. I got her to watch it with. I, I told her the Alzheimer's joke. That's, uh, that's what I go for. I want people to like want to retell my jokes and not get them right. And you know, it's hard because it's it's the cadence, it's the the way you deliver it. It's very hard. Not just cadence, but it's like word for word. Like if you miss one, if you miss mix up one word or leave it out a word the or joke. add an extra word, it yeah. does. So when yeah. you learn these jokes, when you sit down and work them, do you? It, I mean. How many times do you go do this at a club and you're like, something's not quite right, and you keep working it until it's the way you, you know it's perfect? Usually, a joke when it's halfway out of my mouth. I'm like, this is not a good joke. I thought it was going to be great, and it's not. Um, but sometimes, occasionally, it's like, oh, this is a little bit too wordy. And I usually figure that out on the page. It's more of like as a writer, you just take out every extra word that you don't need. Right. And you've got to like, you know, lead them astray in the setup. So you need a little bit of extra stuff there. But it's just how do you lead them down the path? But I really am a big fan of the fewer words, the better. Uh, so so I, I occasionally I'll be talking. And I'm like, I can, I can lose a little more from this right. and still get the same reaction. But very rarely do I work on a joke where I'm like, you know, the punchline's not quite right. You know, very rarely. If I'm like, I know I can get it better. And then I'll eventually hit it, and it's like, oh, there you go. No, but you know what's funny is I notice, like, you make it look effortless because it almost seems like I'm like, I wonder if it's easier what he's doing. And, and by the way, I'm prefacing with that because I know it's not. But you say it's like you almost say very few words, and the pauses, these stagnant—I'm not stagnant's not the right word. I mean, they're just these lump that work that you make them work. Where you're like the way you say it, it it's just—it looks like it's, it's few words, it's slow, it's your pace, and the payoff just works. But like, do you try to go as say as few words as you can mm-hmm. in a yeah, joke? A Is that really I can? And the pauses are there for a reason. You know, I want the audience to be dead silent, hanging on every word, waiting for the punchline, because <laughs> then they never know where it's going to come from. Like, my job is hiding the punchline. Some jokes are shorter. Some jokes are longer. Like, I'm a pitcher. Yeah. I got to throw some fastballs, some change up, some curves. You don't you want know? people to see it coming, because that's, that's what's hard. It's like, you think you see it coming. Mm-hmm. Here it comes. He's going to say this, and then it's a completely different direction. Yes. Same di- yeah. And that's what's, I think, why it works so well. But also, getting the entire audience to be silent... Oh. is tough so to get so like to that deliberate pace makes them like lean in and have to pay attention if the, the audience is if i tell a joke and it doesn't work and the audience is still quiet i'm still cool if they start talking to each other you know when they're ordering from the waiters that's when i'm in trouble that you want to keep them quiet and just what's going to come next and you probably had to deal with i mean look you didn't this took years and years of developing and fine-tuning this this personality that you created like mm-hmm. dice clay didn't just one day go oh yeah right i mean this is something that i mean i read about you were on fallon and like you wanted to tell this cancer joke like a cancer stand-up comedian who was talking to cancer patients and oh no that was on my tv show that, that was on the, the tv and, they, and they didn't, the network didn't want to do it right no that was actually on my tv show on comedy central and that was the first episode was me talking to cancer patients right I, that's right but my, they didn't want to do that at first right i never pitched it on fallon no but i definitely pitched jokes to fallon where they would be like this is i'd make the room laugh too dark and they'd say jimmy can't say like an know. obesity joke fallon was like no i can't i think it's funny i can't do it it's just gonna make fat women hate me 
Yes. So, so you were always doing shit like that, and you're like, this is what I want to do. I liked the idea of the joke being so good that even though I'm not likable, they still have to laugh. Right. You know, because that just made it harder. If they like you, they're going to laugh at whatever the hell you say. Do you, yeah. But if they don't, then it makes it really tough. And I just wanted, I wanted to be lifting the heaviest weights possible. I want to go back because I'm going to get to this. It sounds like we started talking about all the current shit because you have the special on Netflix that's amazing, the Fire in the Maternity Ward. Yes, thank you. And it's it's incredible. I, I, I personally love dark, dark shit. Now, uh, you know, it's different when it's really dark and it's coming from a guy who really believes in everything he's saying. And he's and but, you know, that's not the case. Correct? Of course. Uh, no. I mean, you're saying part. things ironically. You're saying things... How would you describe your comedy? I would say I know I'm, I'm a self-aware villain. You know, like there, there was an article, there's a review in Vulture published called like Anthony Jeselnik repeatedly punches himself in his own face. You know what I mean? Like I'm a villain and I'm taking myself down kind yeah, of. Yeah. But the jokes are still there, you know, and you can read it both ways. You can read it as like, oh, I agree with this guy or this guy's <laughs> clearly joking. We can enjoy this. It really is like a horror film. You were talking about being a, a horror film buff. It's like yeah. you go to see a horror film. Uh, you know what you're getting. You can laugh at it and enjoy it knowing that no one's really getting killed. You know, it's not uh, – right. it's, it's a safe space to laugh at these sort of things. Well, you know, I, I feel like, you know, self-deprecation is obviously – you know, comics, the best comics are always self-deprecating, right? I wouldn't say the best, but a lot of them are. <laughs> right. But you, a lot of your stories, you talk about your family. And I'm like, was this, is this family really obese? No. I mean, no, no jokes about my family are real at all. Even like, the dick pics? I, <laughs> even the dick, even pics. the dick pics. Like, I, I, in the beginning of every special, I, like, resurrect my parents. And then I kill them throughout. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I talk about my parents, and then they die at some point. And my grandparents die. And then the next hour, I start from scratch, and everyone's alive again. Right, right. So start, it's all, everything's out. kind of just in your head. It's just mm-hmm. made up. Like, there's no true. Like, for me, when I was doing stand up for a year, and I want to get in, into that with you, too, because I know you don't love actors who become stand up comedians. I, I, love is not the right word. Respect, I would say. I don't respect them. <laughs> I don't respect them. Yes. I want to get into that. Well, let's get into that for a second because, sure. you know, like we have mutual friends, Harlan Williams, Bobby Lee, and a lot of these guys, they said, hey, you should do stand-up. They've always asked me to do, told me to do stand-up. And I, I always was hesitant because like you, I thought this is a respect thing. This is these guys like yourself, Harlan, they've spent their whole lives doing stand-up comedy. They've worked in clubs, the shittiest clubs on earth to get where they are. And then here comes a guy who, Oh, I was on a show. It had success. So now I just walk on stage and I get 15, 20 minutes and I go on and it does it. And I, I, even when I was doing it, Harlan goes, Hey bud, you know, Harlan Williams. He's like, bud, you can't worry about what other fucking people say. You got to go up and do your things. They're all going to look at you like, who the fuck is this? He didn't do it like his 10 years of homework. He didn't work at all the shitty clubs. Bud, you got to fucking ignore them. They're jealous. Just do your fucking thing. What, what, what do you say about that? I mean, I think you have to prove yourself for sure. And people are going to look at you like you're unproven. We know why you got the spot. But during that 15, 20 minutes you're on stage, you're on your own. They don't, I mean, they'll cheer for you and you'll get the spot because of who you are. But it doesn't make you funnier. You know, right. that you do you have to be earn, funny. You got to come through. You do have to earn it that way. That I think it can be earned, but it takes a while. And I just think that if you get into stand up at an older age, when you already have developed another skill, 
it becomes tougher to dedicate yourself to stand-up. Like I was a halfway decent actor in college. And when I like first moved to LA, took some improv classes and stuff. But everything that made me good at stand-up made me worse at acting. That now I'm almost I'm almost like unfilmable because <laughs> I'm never listening. You know, I can't have the conversation. It's like I'm a I'm I'm a freight train. And we're not going to be sharing the scene. Right. It's, I'm either I'm either coming in to win it or or uh, or I can't do it. That I think it's I think it's a similar for actors. Yeah. That actors want almost a conversation and they they don't get it. They want instant gratification. Instant. And, and with you, it's like I couldn't imagine myself when I was going on there. I needed to hear the laughs. I needed to like say something and get that that. Whereas you would tell these stories where it could be a minute, two minutes before that punchline's in. But when those, in situations like that, I know that punchline is going to be killer because I, I'm, I tell short jokes because I need the laughs. That if I tell a couple jokes in a row that don't work, I start to feel it. You know, and I, but I need those laughs every once in a while. So if I tell a longer one, it's only long because the punchline is going to be killer. And I can right. be comfortable knowing the whole time that at the end of this, people are going to be on the floor. All right. So what were you doing growing up? Were you popular? Because you're a good looking guy. Sure. Uh, I'm better, <laughs> sure I'm good looking. I'm on, I'm better looking now than I was in high school. I, you know, I, 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 me too. I, I was not a good it. looking kid. I yeah. was awkward. I did, couldn't get nailed in wood shop. Uh, Rob, did you get laid a lot in high school? No. No, you, your mom put you on Adderall and things, right? Well, depression, drugs? For uh, It was after. Oh, it was after? Or, no, it was, uh, <laughs> it was high school, I guess. Right. I wasn't popular and I wasn't good looking. And so, and in fact, I, you know, I, I feel like definitely in my older age, I started getting better looking at into my thirties and even now in my forties, I was not attractive at all. So, I mean, did you, did you get late in high school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A couple times, you know, not like a t- I had girlfriends, you know, uh, in high school, but, uh, I think I lost my virginity at, at 16, but, um, didn't get late a lot until, until college. But uh, I wasn't one of the popular kids. I had friends, you know. Uh, I was friends with the, kind of like the nerdier jocks, I guess you could say. But the popular kids didn't have uh, didn't have much to do with me. I was a little too weird. Were you always cracking jokes even back then? Were you because I read somewhere where like you, I, you, I remember you told like you were already telling jokes for adults when you were young. Yeah, and it was always like re- responding to things. Like teachers would be talking or classmates would be talking, and something would pop into my head, and I had to say it. So it was kind of Tourette's in a way. A little Tourette's, a little just like this is too good not to say. It was like if you thought of like a brilliant novel and you didn't write it down. That's how I felt. It was like my head will explode. Who was the basketball player who used to get technical fouls all the time? Uh, Rashid Wallace. Remember Rashid, Wa- Rashid Wallace? Vaguely. He would get technicals like an unprecedented level. And they're like, you're hurting your team. And he's like, I know. But when a call goes against me and I think the ref is wrong, it's like my head will open up, crack open if I don't yell something. And that's why it keeps getting teed up. And that's how I felt in high school. <laughs> if I didn't say this joke, whether right. it was good or bad or inappropriate or not, my head would just crack open. That I felt like I had to Did you it. get in trouble in high school? Were you expelled at all? Did you get... See, I, I was like the class clown in honors classes. Do you know what I mean? So I was still smart. So they knew yeah. not to like send me out of the room, but I was frustrating. To Some teachers loved me and we got along and some really, really despised me. Right. You know? But like a, couple, like a year ago, my high school had, had honored me. They, like, they have a um, – Upper St. Clair is where I went to high school in Pittsburgh. And they have an alumni hall of fame. 
Right. And they finally put me in and I was like, this, like everyone else was kind of like, thanks, you know, whatever. And I was like, this actually means a lot to me because I didn't have a good time in school. And you guys were trying to get me to stop doing all the things that have made me a successful comedian and a singular comedian. You know, they were like, you're being too dark. You seem crazy. Uh, this is this is weird. And th- this was all pre-Columbine. If I had been in school after Columbine, I think I would have had a much different experience that I, that I may have been expelled just for the kind of stuff I would say. I was darker than I was funny. You immediately like, find the funny in things. Yes. No matter how dark. Or just how inappropriate. Like what's the worst thing you can say or do? And when you're a kid, when you're a teenager, and like uh, in the way you're obsessed with horror films, like that sort of stuff was... Uh, it was interesting to me. You were the weird kid if you were into horror and into these things. It was like, I see it in a different way than you do. You know, I'm not turned off by these things. I'm fascinated by them. And death was always fascinating to me. You know, why is death such a taboo if everyone goes through it? The greatest minds in history have spent their lives thinking about what happens after we die. But I'm somehow wrong for uh, for writing about it in an essay or talking about it in class. They think you were macabre or... Exactly. They were like, you're, they were, you're just inappropriate and... People just aren't going to like you because of this. And what did your family think? Were they always supportive? They was like, Anthony, you're kind of dark. Why don't you just like, I don't know, good them all. They didn't like the dark stuff. Uh, they thought that I was very smart and didn't apply myself. They thought that I was throwing my life away kind of just instead of studying hard. And, you know, where I grew, where I grew up, you were either a doctor, a lawyer, a businessman or a loser. Pittsburgh. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like Pittsburgh suburbs. Right. And my dad was an attorney. My mom was a housewife. They didn't know anything about the entertainment business. Right. You know, and it wasn't like I was like, I, and I didn't even talk about being a comedian when I was younger. I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to be a writer. Right. You want to write the great, next great American novel, right? I didn't even have my set, my uh, sight set that high. Just an, any kind of a novelist would have been great. I just loved reading. And I wanted to be a part of that world. Yeah. And then as I got through college, I started to realize what that life entailed. And it didn't seem fun. You know, I wanted to be a novelist when Hemingway was a novelist, not now when no one reads books. See, I was I was the opposite. I wasn't like it's different when you're dark and you're really brilliant or you're really a bright guy and you're you're, you know, you're a reader. (laughs) You know, for me, I was not getting good grades. I was in like basic math. I, you know, I couldn't, and I was the weird guy and I was always telling jokes and I thought, you know, cause I liked horror movies and I, and I was doing impressions. I'd sit home on Saturday nights, memorizing every Saturday night live sketch. And that was sort of me. And so, and everyone thought I was just a weird nerdy kid who just didn't fit in, which was correct. And thank God I found acting in the entertainment world because, you know, then you go to off college and you have these little clicks and you find that, oh, there's there's other weird people. Yeah, it's like all the outcasts get together and form their own group. And you're like, oh, this is what I was looking for. Yeah. Uh, like when I heard about like performing art schools, you know, I was like, oh, if I had gotten into that, my life would have been much different. You know, I was just in a school, a public school where it was it was just one curriculum, barely any like creative writing. If I'd been able to take creative writing every year, I would have been much better behaved. You know, I just like I couldn't stand math. And it was like I was one of the kids who knew I was never gonna use calculus. And they'd be like, You might someday. No, I am not. Yeah. And I've proven them right. I failed calculus in high school. I was an honors calculus. I got a D first semester, an F second semester, and they're like, You're going to summer school. And I thought summer school was like you sit in class like normal school. And they're like, no, we give you the textbook. You go through it on your own pace. When you tell us you want to take the test, you take the test. And if you pass it, you can take the next one until you're done with the semester. And I'm like, so how long do I have to be here? And they're like, as long as you want. In two weeks, 
and I had to start from the beginning of the book because if you, you don't know the beginning, I got it done. I got the entire book, the entire year's worth of math done in two weeks because it was easy if you applied yourself. But if you were bored with math and just sat through class staring at the board, yeah. you didn't know what was going distractions. on. But when it was like distractions. If you learn this on your own, you get out of here. And so I got I got A's in both semesters because I had to take both, and then I, so I got a D and a pass. And I was like, oh, this was stupid. I could have I could have done this much differently. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know how many times I have to talk about this, but it's so important. If you're sitting there right now and you're stressed or you're anxious or you have a lot on your mind and you just bottle it up and you don't know what to do, it's going to come out and it's not going to come out in great ways all the time. Um, BetterHelp has helped me substantially. Ryan here has been using it for a while. And I, you know, don't you notice when you don't use BetterHelp? When you don't have therapy, oh, the weeks where I miss a session, of course, yeah, yeah, it's just it's 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 like the more you talk about something, even if you don't think you have anything to talk about, things come up, and it puts your mind at ease. And we all carry around different stressors, you know, big and small, and at times we keep carrying them around rather than processing them and letting them go. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy from BetterHelp is helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for all of us. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. I think people think, oh, what if I don't like my therapist? If you don't, you switch them. It's that easy. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com inside today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash inside. Inside of you is brought to you by Rocket Money. I love Rocket Money. You know why? Because everyone should have Rocket Money because it just helps you save money. How many times do we have subscriptions that we don't even know we have anymore and we're paying so much money? It's just throwing away money, Ryan. I, I found one. You And you did it. You told I me. Found, I got Rocket Money. Okay, I found one. It, I'm embarrassed to say how long it's been going on, but thank you for finding it. <laughs> My God, it was embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, because it's like you want to watch some show and you go, oh, I have to subscribe to this uh, this streaming, dev- uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you, you start streaming the show, you watch it, you leave, and you forget after this trial period it kicks in and it's they're charging terrible. you 10 bucks a month. It's, it is embarrassing. Ugh. You know, 75% of people have subscriptions they've forgotten about. Before I started using Rocket Money, I thought I had, you know, like, oh, I have like five subscriptions. I could not believe it when they showed me I was paying for like four extra uh, between, you know, streaming advices and fitness apps, delivery services. It's never ending. And thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lowering your bills for you by up to 20%. 
All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with the customer service for you. I like that. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash inside. That's rocketmoney.com slash inside. Rocketmoney.com slash inside. When is the first time you decided, hey, I want to try stand up? I had come out to L.A. uh, while I was in college because I thought I might try to find a job in Los Angeles. I was at the spring break or something. And my dad, my only, the only connection I had in LA was my dad went to college at Notre Dame with the guy who was Leno's head writer on the tonight show. And so he met with me at the improv in Hollywood. I watched his set and then he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a joke writer. You know, I want to do like what you do. It was no, well, you just said this, but he hadn't seen anything you've done or, no, or anything. And I'd never written, done stand up. So this is just a kid anything. saying, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. This is a, this is like a sophomore in college or junior in college saying, I want to, I want to, I want I think I want to be a joke writer. What do I, and he was like, he just said, just do stand up. He wasn't like, send me some jokes. He wasn't like, read this book. He just said, do stand up. That will teach you how to write a, really write a joke because the audience is telling you. If he didn't, if he didn't tell you that, you think you wouldn't have done it? I think I would have ended up here anyway. I, th- I think unless I didn't go to L.A. or New York after, after college, I think I would have ended up in comedy. Because when I look back on my life, when teachers would say, you're just going to be a comedian someday, I'd be like, no, I'm not. But, uh, but then I'm like, oh, they were right. Uh, but it was like I was out here for a year and working odd jobs. And in the entertainment industry, if you want to be an actor, you can take acting classes. I didn't have the money for that. Right. Uh, and, and you have to kind of wait on other people. If you become a comedian, you can go to an open mic for free every night and be proactive. And work during so the day. Like, exactly. Right. Work during the day, write work jokes. Work to Borders. Work to Borders books for three months. I got fired from every job I've ever had. Every job? Every job. For what usually? Just not showing up? Uh, just I would just slowly start to lose interest and get bored and sh- showing up late, leaving rude early. Rude to people. Rude to people, rude to employees. Do you, know? do you remember, recall something when you ever got fired from being rude to a, a customer? Do you remember what you said? Or do you remember like, or are they just random things that you don't really remember? I usually <laughs> kept my cool. The one time I remember getting fired specifically was I was a teacher's assistant at a high school for emotionally troubled kids. And I would try to joke around with the kids, but these kids were like emotionally troubled, did not get sarcasm. And one time I started like a giant fight. There was this kid, he was 17 years old, looked like he was 35, huge, and wasn't working on his paper. And I'm joking around with them and I don't realize I'm hurting his feelings. And he's getting angry and angry and suddenly desks are flying. Kids are getting punched in the face. Teachers are getting thrown on the ground. He runs outside. They're looking for him for a while. It was like a huge disaster. And they were like, Anthony, you're an assistant here. It's like having an extra emotionally troubled teenager in the room. You need to go. And I was like, thank you. This is the scariest job I've ever had in my life. And that was it. That was it. My God. All right. So so stand up. The first time you went up. Mm-hmm. Where was it? Belly Room Comedy Store. That's uh, that's not ha-has. That's not flappers. That's well, Comedy I, Store. I had taken a class. I, 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 when I was at Borders Books, I, I was like, I thought, you know, I really, I'm dissatisfied with my life. What do I want to do? I, I'm 22. I have time to work on it. You know what I mean? When you're 22, you're just potential. So what, what, can, what do I want to take my shot at? And uh, I thought, stand up, I'll try that. This guy told me this years ago, but I was, it seemed too scary to me. Maybe I don't even want to be a joke writer if that's what I have to do. I got the thinnest book they had on stand-up comedy. And it was like how to do stand-up comedy. And I read it, 
It kind of gives you some structure. I was like, oh, I can do this. And at the back of the book, it said, this guy teaches a class in Santa Monica. So I looked it up online. It was like 200, 300 bucks for like a six week. You class. don't seem like the kind of guy that would take a, com- a stand up comedy class. Everyone says, that. Everyone says that I'm 22 and I just didn't, I didn't know what wouldn't open mic was. Right. I didn't know that I could just go. I didn't, I didn't have the balls to just go up with nothing. Like taking the class kind of taught you little things like how to take the mic out of the stand, you know, where to put the mic stand, what the red light means, you know, don't run the red light. Things that I think every comic should know. And yeah. I follow to this day rules that I like. And you've seen probably comedians not follow those guidelines. Oh, yeah. Like things that are just respectful that they're like, the guy's not listening to the, the red lights on. He's taking time away from the next stand up comedian. Mm-hmm. And every comic that. in the room hates this person now. Uh, because he's doing that, that I knew not to do that. Uh, and then at the end of the class, you did like a graduation thing where every it's like eight people going on stage doing seven minutes each, and it's all of their friends. And at the time, I went last because I had the most friends there. You know, they're like, that's, that's <laughs> the way they did it. And everyone didn't do, no one did well. And then I did great. And then afterwards, I was like, oh my God, I like know how to do this. You could feel the room. I could feel the room. I could feel myself. Like I was just enjoying myself. Do you remember so much. a joke from that first? Yes, because one of the jokes I used, I ended up. Uh, I I had two bits. One about my girlfriend burning down my apartment in college, which is true. But yes, by mistake. But it was true. And then a story about because the, the whole class is talk about your life. You know, because you're teaching twelve people who are all different, different abilities. You can't say write really smart, dark one-liners that no one else would think of. You got to say talk about your life. Right. And at 23, that's all I had in me were those two stories. And one of the jokes ended up in the Donald Trump roast. It was, um, it was like my old boss was such a douchebag. If you looked up the word douchebag in the dictionary, there was a picture of Spencer Pratt. But if you look close. Spencer Pratt is holding a picture of my boss from Borders, you know, and that was like the best joke. And I used that against Trump. And, uh, and then I went back and watched that tape years later. Cause I was like, Oh, that joke was from that. Maybe there's more jokes I can use. And I had a panic attack watching it because I was so bad. I thought it was amazing. I sent that tape out to all my friends and family and it was just horrible. Isn't that something I, I you know, I've done that where you, you, you film it and you're like, you killed it. I'm like, I remember, I was like, oh my God, I got 20 minutes. People are howling, they're laughing. But then I watched it and I was just, I cringed because I just don't like how I was moving. I don't like how I was, rea- I just didn't, I didn't buy a lot of the shit that I was saying. Well, I forget who was, who said this. Was some NPR guy was talking about how when you get into the arts, like you became an actor because you loved acting or you loved movies, you loved watching I didn't actors. like being myself. So being anybody else was easier for sure. me. Sure. But your talent level when you start out doesn't match your, um, perception of what i want it to be or exactly of what, what your goals should be right right and getting right. through that period is the hard people give up before they get better and i was and i and i didn't realize how bad i was at the time because i was comparing myself to the people around me who were mu- obviously much worse but it was uh, i had a lot of work to do my second time on stage i had a full-blown panic attack all right so talk to me about that because it's nice to hear someone of your success level your success level with you know you get panic attacks. Do you, you don't get nervous. Do you get nervous still to this day? Do you get anxiety? I get anxious. Like, I'm like, I just want to go now. Like, once I get on stage, I'm cool. It's like that 10 minutes before my set where I'm just like, what do I do with myself? You know, do I have another beer? Do I just sit here? Do I look at my notes? Like, what am I doing? Does your heart race? Do you uh, feel like you have to take a shit? 
Sometimes, do you sometimes, ever, yeah. Because you know, do you ever feel like I'm, I'm a little nauseous? I'm a little too worked up. Uh, I don't get the gonna, nausea. Is it gonna, is it gonna affect me in my performance? I don't worry about that. It's just it's getting through that mo- that pre moment. It's I know when I get when I'm out there, I'm gonna be fine. But it wasn't always like that. You probably let your nerves get the mo- best of you early on before you became successful. And I think it's always your imagination. It's like I mean, the second time I got on stage, I was totally unprepared. I was hungover, and I thought because I did it once. That I just redo what I had done then. You forget that every show is going to be different and you need to be in the moment. I wasn't in the moment. And because of that, seven minutes of material went by in two and a half minutes. And I just didn't know what was happening. No one was laughing where they should have been laughing. I just started talking faster and faster. You want to get off stage? Yeah. I I wanted it to be over. And when someone wants it to be over, and you can see comics when they want it to be over, it's unpleasant. And I just got off stage, went into the bathroom shaking covered in sweat and was like what i had never experienced this before what is happening did you want to never do it again i felt like i'd gotten beaten up and knocked down and i wanted to get up and fight again but i couldn't quite pull it off like i would drive to open mics and knock it out of the car for months i would do wow. that out of fear out of like out of yeah out of a fear of like this is going to happen again like i don't know how to do this that's sort of uh an anxiety attack they say that and i've had anxiety but you you once you have an anxiety attack somewhere or you have this feeling of absolute failure if you don't face it head on that atmosphere will bring back that same feeling mm-hmm. so the fact that you were going but you just wouldn't face it was probably making it worse. I mean, there's a th- I remember reading a book. Uh, I forget who, like a Tim Robbins novel. Tim Robbins? Tom Robbins? Whatever. Well, Tim Robbins is the actor. Yeah, who's the, who's the Tom, writer? Tom Robbins. Tom Robbins. Wrote this book, and about, uh, there were these tightrope walkers, a family of tightrope walkers, and one, the, the grandfather's walking across his tightrope, and he falls. And everyone mourns. They bury him. The next day, the entire family has to walk across that same tightrope because if they don't do it the next day, they'll never do it again. You know, you have to face that trauma immediately or else it sinks in and then you're screwed. Fuck. Yeah. I think that is so true with everything. Mm -hmm. I think the more you put it off and you go, yeah, I'm going to do that again. I'll do it again. Yeah, just not right now. It's just, it's it's making it worse. Like if I have a good set or a great set, I feel cool. I'm like, I'm I'm good. I can go chill. If I have a bad set, it's like, when can I get up again and erase that from my memory? That's almost like uh, my whole career has been like, a f- like, how do I make up for this failure and make this failure not mean anything to me? How do you, how many, how often do you fail at this point in your life? Oh, all the time. You fail all the time. All the time. You have like a huge Netflix special, mm-hmm. which you, you watch and you're like, he, he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm doing. You know what you're doing, fail. but you fail. Do you think you fail because you're testing new material? Is that why, why you fail? Sometimes. Or do you fail because sometimes the audience is just different? They don't, they don't like what you're saying. What I say sometimes is that if you didn't pay money to come see me, you don't want to see me. You know, if I'm a surprise, I'm a bad surprise for most people. You know, if people just come to see comedy, like if I'm at the comedy store with 20 other comics, it's not the same reaction as if I'm at the Largo and it's everyone paid to come and see me do half an hour or an hour. Why? Because everyone's there and they know what they're coming to get. And they're excited just to see me. You right. know, it's like so they're there. Like, that yeah. makes perfect if sense. If you're there to see a bunch of people, then maybe I'm not your cup of tea. And you've never even heard of me before. Psychology. But that's still that's being in the gym. So by going to the comedy store and having sets that are just iffy and occasionally you have a great one. But sometimes you have one where you just totally fail. And that makes you want to get out and work more. 
When did you stop and did you stop worrying about what other comedians thought about you? Pretty quickly because like I, when I put like by the time I put my first album out, that was like even when I started to feel like I was doing a good job, like these jokes are good. I've got I've got really smart jokes that comedians are like, wow, that's a great joke. And that's all I that, I wanted comedians respect more than the audience respect. But then I thought, well, now I can do seven minutes of this. Can I do 10? Can I do 15? Can I do 30? Can I open for someone on the road doing 30? Can I do 45? Can I do an hour of this? And then it became, can I do another hour of this? And now I, I've done, I've completed my fourth hour. This is, you know, 17 years later. Can you go up right now and do three hours? No. Two hours? No. Hour and a half? Maybe a lot of crowd work. Like I forget the, the jokes. I forget the, the jokes when I move on to so the So it's next like a hour. muscle. Like if you know, it's like if you're not, if you're a tennis player, you don't play tennis for a couple of weeks or a year, you can't go back and just pick it up right from where you're. It's almost like it's almost like you're uh, you're a multi-sport athlete and you need to train for one. You take the test and you tr- move on to the next sport. You know, you like you're going to let those muscles go so you can work on the new muscles. Right. That I have to do that. That if you were like, I loved your joke from your first album. Would you tell it to me again? I can't remember it. If you t- if I heard it, I'd be like, oh yeah, that joke. But I wouldn't be able to tell you because I have to forget to make room for the next one. Do your parents love your material? Do they or do they look at it and go? I wish he would be more audience friendly. I wish he'd be not audience friendly. What's the right word? I wish he'd be more of the uh, affable, affable, maybe. I think they're, they're extremely proud of my success and they know that comes from what the material is, you know, that the material is dark and that I'm, they, they like that I'm singular, you know, that there's no one else quite like me. Uh, I think a lot of it flies in the face of their beliefs. So I don't know if they're that thrilled about that, but they never let on to that. Like my mom used to say, I, I loved it, Anthony, but that one joke I didn't like. And I told her, listen, mom, I face criticism from the entire world and it doesn't bother me, but you're my mother. So you need to stop that. And now she just says wow. she's the same thing every time. She goes, Anthony, every time I think it can't get any better, I see you again and you're even better. And I'm like, thank you, mom. That's all I need to hear. That's all you need from your mom. Your parents are still with you? Mm-hmm. Are they very supportive? Do you talk to your mom and dad every day, every week? Not every day. I talk to my mom uh, once, at least once a month. My dad, maybe every two or three months. But now that, I, like, since I have a podcast of my own now, uh, am I coming on that one? Um, we don't have guests. Okay. I I, I, hate I know the idea because of I told to you. People. Remember, there was on the email. I said something like, "I forgot what you said." You're like, "This is why I don't have guests." Yeah. Because so you don't have to do the homework on them. Not even, not even just homework. <laughs> or but watch just, a special or watch whatever. Well, I thought just like bothering people. Just being like, yeah. hey, like, you know. I hate it too. I need somebody. Look, I hate it too. But the reality is it's Rob's fault. It's fucking Rob's fault because he right. forced me to get a podcast and I didn't want to do it. And he goes, you'd be good at it. You'd be good at it and it'd be fun. You should try it. And I started doing it. And the reason I do it is because I actually, I actually enjoy it. I actually love talking to people and getting to know people, but it becomes like it always, it's therapy for me. And sometimes it's therapy for them and the audience. And it's nice to have like a little inside of what you, the process is and what you go through. And I, I actually enjoy it. It gives me more purpose. I actually think I like it. Dax and I have talked about this because we're like, God, wouldn't it be great if we just made a living off this? Dax, too. Shepard? I'm kidding. Oh. You're coming well, on. How, and how many Daxes are there? Right? Yeah. Are you, are you producing that one too? Yeah. Oh, great. He's, he produced this one first, though. That one's way bigger, but he produced this one first. They're close in size. Uh, I wouldn't say it. 
do you like doing podcasts? Do you like doing your podcast? I like doing mine. It's just me and my best friend, you know, uh, doing whatever we want, kind of just, and we, we put very little effort into it. And people seem to enjoy it. They're like, we like, it's about male friendship. You know, we've been friends for 20 plus years. And, you know, people who know me as my persona are surprised that I have a best friend, that I'm godfather to both of his kids. Like, what would make, what, what have we been through together that he, someone would make me godfather to both of their kids? You know, and what's I, it called? It's called the Jesselnick and Rosenthal Vanity Project. His name is Greg Rosenthal. He's an NFL analyst. I like that. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, I'm going to check it out. Have a good time. I've got to listen to that. Check it out. Um, yeah, I, I like doing this. I like doing this because, you know, it's not like it, it, for, for most people, it's not a moneymaker. I mean, mm-hmm. po- doing a podcast. It's like it's and it's hard. You said the first thing you said was like, I don't want to bother people. And I feel like I've bothered so many people like yourself. I bother you. <laughs> but I would happily have been like, no, thank you. Yeah. I mean, if, when I've got something to promote, I enjoy doing this. Right. But when I, I had a TV show, you know, five or six years ago, and I had to do every podcast under the sun. Yeah. That I was just like, no more. Because sometimes like, this is a popular podcast. This is a helpful podcast. But there are some that are just like, you're just there. It, you know, you might as well be spitting in the wind because right. for all the good it's doing you. But sometimes it, it is helpful and it is fun. You know, yeah, I enjoy I, talking yeah. about myself. Yeah, <laughs> you do. Well, look, I lo- I love the special too, and I think that you know. Do you ever worry about talking about such sacred things like abortion and these things that it makes people become more desensitized to things, or do you think like, or do you think it helps like um, dealing with such tragedy? There's so much shit going on in the world that when you can make fun of something or not make fun of it, but talk about it and and make people laugh about it. Is is it? It sort of helps the situation. I mean, how do you feel about it? Is there anything that and, and, and is there anything that you wouldn't talk about? No, there's nothing that I wouldn't talk about. There's certain words I wouldn't use, but there's nothing that I wouldn't talk about. Um, and I, I think it, I don't know if it helps. It certainly doesn't hurt. You know, bad things are coming for all of us. You know, everybody dies. So I don't feel bad bringing these things up. People, are like, you shouldn't joke about that. Why not? It's it's not like going away. You know, people are like, oh, if you make. If you make a joke about cancer, that means that like someone in the audience has cancer. Like, yeah, but those people love those people love to hear jokes about cancer because everyone's being so sensitive around them all the time. Right. And it's not like I can cure their cancer by not joking about it. That's my biggest goal as as a comedian and an artist. Is it whatever the topic is, make someone laugh even though they don't want to. Do you ever ask? Is there one guy, your your friend of twenty years, that you're like, what do you think? Is is it too much? I've never asked if it's too never much. Never asked if it's too much. No, because if it, if you get a laugh, then it's not too much. What have you not gotten a laugh? What's a joke that you love that you just didn't get a laugh on? Is there any jokes that you can remember that you're like, God, I love that joke. The only joke I can remember, and it wasn't because it was too much. It was, I think the joke just didn't make sense. But the joke, I thought it was so funny and it never got a laugh. It was, um, I thought I was a father once, but then they did a blood test on the baby and the baby died. I thought that was so funny, but no one ever laughed at it ever that I was just like, all right, the audience talked me out of it. They talked you out of it. How many times did you try it? At least 20, 25 times. What I find difficult when I'm watching you is he just doesn't break. For the most part, an occasional smile. Is 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 the smile planned at all? Do you ever actually, or in that moment, do you just kind of get a kick out of what you're saying? It's not even, I'm not laughing at what I'm saying. I'm laughing at the audience laughing at what I'm saying. 
It's the audience's reaction that makes me laugh. It's like, I just said this horrible thing and these people are dying laughing. That cracks me up. So kind of like, good for you, Anthony. Good yeah. for you. Kind of. It's just, it just it's, <laughs> or head. I'll see someone in the audience, like a really old person laughing yeah. and I can't help but laugh at that. Or someone has a weird laugh that makes me laugh, but I'm laughing at their reaction. Uh, it's, I mean, I know my jokes back, like the back of my hand, they're not cracking me up. Uh, but it's the reaction. And sometimes I'll smile knowing what's coming up. If people are getting really offended and I'm like, it's going only getting much, much worse, then then I'll I'll be laughing at that. But I, I try to make I try to be judici- judicious with it. People are like, we love it when you smile and let us know you're joking. You have a great smile, smile more. And I'm like, it can't be fake. <laughs> it has to be real. Otherwise, uh otherwise it, then it's like it's like a trick and I feel like it'd be phony. And when I do like a TV special, I smile way less than I do in a live show. Because you're aware that cameras are on you. Right. And so it makes it a little bit different. And it breaks up maybe a little bit, gives some, the audience a little something that's watching that like, hey, he's human. He's not so dark. That's not the reason I do it. I mean, I would love to just do it. Like, I would love the audience to think that I am A cold mother. That's yeah. who you are. Like, I don't like the audience to see me before the show or after the show. I want, I would, you don't want to, you're not out there selling shirts. Exactly. You're not doing a meet and greet. If I could appear in a puff of smoke on stage and then disappear in a puff of smoke like I was the devil. That's what I would want to do. Have you had publicists try to talk you out of that? Like, hey, it'd be good if you did this. It'd be good and you just stuck to your guns. Like, this is the persona I want to do. This I've had, is, I mean, convey. I've had, I've certainly done a lot of press for this special and every article is like humanizing me. You know, like he's not really like this. It's like this. I'm like, you don't have to explain that. Of course, I'm not like this. Like I was, I was at the gym the other day, and I, I, I ran into. Um, not, of, not of course. When people watch it, listen. I watched it with a girl, and she's like, "He's dark." So when you're sitting sitting here telling me, it's like, well, yeah, yeah. It's not that you have to explain it, but you know, people. Some people need that education. They need to go. Oh, he's not like. Oh, sure, but that guy would be in jail. You know what I mean? He'd be on death row. <laughs> like I was at the gym the other day, and I ran into Topher Grace. Mm-hmm. And Topher's like, Anthony, I'm a big fan. He goes, and I just, I see you in this gym and I just didn't recognize you at first because you're not, you don't act the way you do on stage. And I'm like, how the hell would I act like I do on stage in the gym? Hey, will you give me that dumbbell, dumbbell? Exactly. Like it was like, there's no, uh, I would have said something smarter than that, but there's no, uh, <laughs> that, that person's not a human being. Like he couldn't exist in the world. But I think if you don't know that much about stand up, and you know, most stand ups just talk about their life, then you would think, oh, is this guy just doing that? But then you meet me and you're like, oh, this is clearly an act. Do you cry? Yeah. When's I mean, the last time you cried? It's tough. Probably, I mean, it's almost always a movie. It's like the end of a movie will get me. Where I'll get Forrest like, Gump, Shawshank no. Redemption. It's go sooner no. than that. Those came out like 25 well, I'm years dated. ago. I'm dated. No. The last one that really got me was La La Land. Really? And everyone was shocked. But La La Land uh, made, me, made me cry. And not a lot. Like I, It's like I'm one of those criers where like it, the tears well up and my eyes hurt. Right. That I like consciously pull you, them back. Pull them back. Like, you want to back like in your painful. head. Yeah. To even right. get one tear down my cheek. Yeah. I try not to let that one. tear fall either. Yeah. And I, I wish I did it. I wish I cried more because right. you feel better. It's like an emotional release. Yeah. I have friends. So I talk about it all the time of like, that. like, I bet I can make you cry. Or next time you think you're going to cry, call me and I'll get you, I'll like get you over the edge and let you like <laughs> let it out. I would love to let have it you, out. Have you ever gotten mad on stage? Oh yeah, almost. No, I mean, like really angry. Oh yeah, absolutely. And what happened? I kicked somebody out. I just—I mean, it's like somebody—they're just being drunk and disrespectful, or they're being too loud. They think the show's just for them. They're in the front row, and I'm like, "You're ruining this. You're ruining my timing. You're distracting me. It makes me angry." But I don't. If I lose my temper, 
That's how I, when I feel like I failed. If I have a bad set, that you have a bad set. That's right. fine. But if I flip out and start screaming at people, then I'm like, that was on me. Let, I, yeah. shouldn't have, I should have been calm. And there are ways to handle things. But I, I mishandled that. Like, were you? Are you like, hey, you know what? Get him out of here. Out. Get the fuck out of here, dude. Get the fuck out. I'll just uh, my code word. I always tell the uh, the uh, when if I'm in a theater or a club, I say my code word is get the fuck out. Because some people will say get this guy a glass of water, and that's the code to get them out because they want to they want to still seem likable. But I'll tell them like, hey guys, shut up. You're you're out of here. And if they keep going, I'll give them maybe one more chance because if you kick someone out right away, the audience doesn't like you. They're like, what's his problem? Yeah. But if you give them enough rope where the audience is like, when is he going to kick him out? Then you're allowed. So that's so then I'm eventually like, you know what? Get the fuck out. I saw, security yeah, gets I him, saw Chris D'Elia kick someone out. D'Elia kicks someone out. Right? Drop that. What? You got to drop the Sharpie when you say that. Oh, yeah. Well, is he big enough? <laughs> He's bigger than me, but... Still a name drop. All right, I'll drop it. He's bigger than me, but... Uh... But I remember he's like, you know what, get get him out. Get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck. And then he went back into his routine where I, I would be so flustered that I'd be like, fuck, I don't. And somehow he got back into it. It's almost a relief when they're gone that I don't feel flustered after they're gone. Sometimes I'm mad I waited too long to kick someone out, which I have done. Because I'll like brag about how I rarely have to do it. And then someone's talking and it's, it's always alcohol or they're on like they're on Coke or something and they just can't shut the fuck up. Or they just think that the show is just for them. Like right. they'll be like, "Yeah, man, yeah," and that's just as annoying as yeah. you suck. You don't want that. No. But it probably took you years before you had the, you know, the strength as a comedian or the uh, the uh, j- just to kick someone out. Well, you're not you're not really allowed to kick someone out until it's your show. So there are a lot of times you just have to suffer with whatever is going on. Because, oh, really? You can't be like the third guy up. Go get out. Get him out. Oh no, they're like, hey, they're buying drinks. Shut, do your set and get out of here. You can leave. But we're not kicking these guys out. It's a party of eight. We're not doing that for you. Right. Now, whoever I want gone, even if it's before the show, if I was like, hey, that guy, I don't like the way that guy looks, get him out. They'll kick him out for me. Right. Uh, but then I try not to do that. Yeah. How often have you had to do that? Uh, kick someone out before the show? Based on how they look. Never. <laughs> not once. But I, but I actually, one time someone showed up like in a full costume. And I was like, this isn't good. This is not. This is not good. You're already get, distracted. Get, yeah, like they're they're trying to distract me and be part of the show. I don't want that. Yeah, I don't want people showing up in like shark hats. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is not like your own personal bachelor party. Get out of here. Do you uh, you talk about your dating at all? No. Like right now? No. You never talk about your dating. Not really. Do you date a lot? I don't date. I say I'd say what I I describe it as taking lovers. I take I take lovers every once in a while, but I get sick of people pretty quick. So it's it's a short lived thing. You do what makes you what gets you tired of someone? I I just really like to be alone. I like my alone time. I like to be able to read, write, be on the road, do things. When people get clingy, then I just I push, I pull away, and I'm like, you know what? I'd rather just be by myself for a while. And then after a few weeks, a month, you get horny, and you're like, all right, time to take another lover. Another lover. Yeah, that should be your next album. Another lover. Next uh, Netflix special. That was my first album. Another lover. Another lover. Yeah, but do you? <laughs> I mean, it is hard to date. It's hard to date. Do you find do you ever go out with someone who recognizes you? Do you ever go out with them, or do you find that's difficult? Do you rather not go out with someone that recognizes you? It's annoying because it's like a bar you have to live up to. Like fans will flirt with. me. I want to date the like, asshole. Okay, so be be you know, and then you're yeah, like, yeah, it's like they have a preconceived notion of what it's going to be, and they look at you like you're a lottery ticket. You know, like this guy's successful. He's got money. He's got uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, confidence. Confidence, but uh, ambition. 
right. feel like now it's like a lot of people, I mean, not in LA, <laughs> everyone's got ambition, but you go around the country yeah. and people are just like, I would love to meet a guy or a girl who just wants to do something. Everyone just has Isn't this that... job and they're just like, yeah, I'm doing this job. I hate it. And like, well, don't get another one. Like, uh, I'm not going to get another one. I'm, I'm just going to do this. And you're like, <laughs> yeah. So like ambition, like having something, a goal that you want to achieve is very sexy to a lot of people. And you forget that in LA or New York or in the entertainment business, how attractive just ambition. Isn't that funny? I'm on like that hinge. I'm on an app for dating, right? Are you on an app for dating? I try. I got, I got rejected from Raya. I have a friend pass that I can give you. But I noticed that girls like, I want someone with ambition. Mm-hmm. My God, that's what they want? Is this what this world's come to? They just need someone with any kind of drive? I think it's like But it kind of turns me off. It kind of puts a it's To me, it's threatening. To me, it's like, I'm going to let her down. Because I might have, I might be ambitious sometimes, but I could be a lazy fuck a lot of the times. Yeah. So when she wants ambition, I'm like, maybe I'm wasting her time. I find that they want ambition, but they want to be around it. It's like, yeah, I'm ambitious. I need alone time to do this. You got to go. And I'm like, no, no, it's, it's like, like, like my perfect relationship. If I was going to get married, separate houses, for sure. <laughs> Beautiful. When I hear about couples like that, I'm like, yes, that sounds, that sounds great. What are you, 40? 40, yeah. Just He's turned. 29. He's got a kid already. 30. 30. 20, 30. How, how old's the kid? Two. That's, can you imagine? I mean, that's most people. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. It's not me. Not me. What's your longest relationship? <sighs> Probably like, I do a lot of, I do so, my, on old, my old ones were on and off like Year. three, four years. Yeah. I always yeah. say three years and they're like, oh, really? Three years? I'm like, oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Six months at a time. Why is it hard for guys like us? Like um, guys, like guys, in, I don't know. It seems like we may not have a lot of common, but we do. I'm 46. You're 40. But it's just, why is it so hard for us to be? Is it that we really deep down don't want a relationship or we want to be happy, but we don't want anything to hinder our happiness because we're really good at being alone or we're really good at being independent? Is there some? What is it? I'm scared of not of being trapped, but of feeling trapped. The idea that you get married and you're like, oh, fuck, like, what did I do? Now I'm locked into this. And it's not like I think there's going to be something better out there. It's like, maybe I just want to be alone. Maybe this person wasn't the one I want to be with. And I think that, like, I was in a relationship when I was younger that I w- people thought we were going to get married. And we didn't because I was, like, just scared I would get divorced one day. Yeah. And then toward the end when we finally broke up, she was like, you didn't think I was scared too? Like, you just take a chance and you go through it together. And I was like, oh, I didn't think of it like that. I didn't <laughs> yeah. think of it like that at all. I thought that, like, everyone had that, like, storybook thing in their head. Yeah. That if there was a chance you were going to get divorced, you shouldn't be getting married. But everyone has a chance of getting divorced. And people change over their lives. That I just feel like I, I've enjoyed my evolution over these forty years. That I'm glad I never got married. I have no regrets about the relationship. You feel like you have your shit together more now than ever. Oh, for sure. Like you feel confident in who you are and what you are and where you're going. One hundred percent. No doubts. No, I mean the only doubt, like the only questions I have are like how long I keep this up before I bail. You know, like this is you get tired. Firing the maternity ward's my fourth hour, and I just don't know if I can top it. And I assume eventually I'll be like, I've got to get back out there and do it. But I'm like, I, don't, I never want to be bad at this. You know, that like that I wonder, like, do I have enough money now that if I never worked again, I'd be okay? Do you know uh, that I deal with that all the time where it's like, you know, I think, hey, I'm not rich. I'm not like a guy who could go buy Mi- Mazda, Miatas. Wait, I could buy a Miata. No, what's the fast one? Maseratis. Miata I could buy. I could buy a Miata. Rob? Yeah, you, you could, could buy, buy a Miata. You could buy a Mazda. <laughs> 
I can't be God, out. I don't want to be the guy. I can't be out there tooling around in Corollas for crying out loud. <laughs> but I think you know, it's like I don't need. When I was younger, I used to be like, I get, I just want to be rich. I want to be make a lot of money. I want to be a big movie star. And and now I'm like, I just want to be healthy. I want to feel good. I want to have enough money to do what I want. But I don't really care like I did about what other people think. I mean, look, we always care about what people think. But to a point where I'm like. Do I have to go out and be a movie star? Do I have to say, hey, look what I'm working on? And what you're saying is like, this is this Netflix special in your eyes is like at this moment, this is the best I've got right now. I don't know if I've got something better. I guess we'll see. But what are you? You're sort of indecisive about like what the future holds. Yeah, I, I, I could do another hour for sure. But I don't know if it, I don't think it could be better than this hour that I've just done. And may, and maybe it could. Maybe things evolve. And that's part of the challenge. I mean, if you had told me after my last special thoughts and prayers that you had to now top this, I would have been like, how am I going to do that? But I was able to get myself to that place where I had to do it. And now I'm so happy. Like I ran into Chris Rock the other night at the uh, <laughs> name drop at the comedy store. And I'd opened up for him uh, toward the end of his tour for a little bit. And I was like, uh, so what are you working on now? Because uh, he had he had a two uh, special deal with Netflix, and I'm like, you, when are you doing the next special? And he's like, I'm not doing anything. I'm like, what do you mean? You got a special by the end of the year. You got to do it. He's like, no. Nope. He goes, I'm too happy. I'm too happy to work on stand up. Like I'm just enjoying my life. I'm too happy. And I'm like, that's kind of how I feel right now. Like I'm just very satisfied and yeah. very happy that I'm like maybe something happens. Maybe I'm wronged in some way. Because most of my successes come from revenge. You know, of like my only revenge is success. Let me go out and work and make everyone not feel bad, but just make myself feel better about something that I've done or a, a failure that I've had. Uh, that I just at forty now, I don't know what kind of what would happen to me that I would feel that insecure again. That I would need to go out and put the three years of work in. But what would you do? This, this what would you out. do if, let's say, you were like, you know what, Anthony, that was the best Netflix special. You're okay with money. What would you do? If somebody said you can't do comedy anymore. I mean, do, you mean stand-up or just like I couldn't work in comedy? Anymore? Well, what would you do in comedy if you could I mean, I, right now I'm working on a TV show for Comedy Central where I like interview comedians. And it's and it like I mean it's a very silly kind of the show's you know we want people to be laughing. With All right, us. so that's great. So your your other things you would do, you do this Comedy Central show. You might be would you act? I know you said I will act like I had, a, I had a, a meeting with like the head of a movie studio who's like, you're my favorite comic. Come talk to me. He's like, would you act? And I go, yeah. If the head of a movie studio said, you're my favorite comedian, come be in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I'd act. Right. But am I going to audition? No. I don't care that much. And I don't. And also, you don't think you'd be a good auditioner? No. I, I know for a fact I'm a terrible I don't think auditioner. anybody is. I, I believe that. But I just don't. It's not. I don't I don't put the work into it. I respect acting, but I don't put the work into it that you need to put the put the work in. But into if it. somebody gave you a part, you put the work into it. Yes. But you're not gonna put the work in for an audition. Yes. I I just don't have it I in like the like, way you think. It's like if I do stand up, like I'll go up I'll go up on stage a little unprepared. And I know that the embarrassment of being unprepared means that next time I do it, I will be a hundred percent prepared. But I can't just do the homework. I have to go out and feel it. And an audition for me is feeling it, right? You know, and then it's but then your chance is over. It's that's it's done. You'll never do it again. But if someone was like, "Here's your part. Here are your lines," I would show up completely prepared. I'm not going to embarrass myself in front of the cast and crew, you know, and ruin someone's right. project. Like if I'm on stage, people are like, "What's what's worse?" I, I they'll, they'll say I do sketch, but I couldn't do stand up. And I'm like, "No, stand up is easy 
because if stand, if I mess up in stand up, I'm the I'm the only one suffering. But if you and I are doing a sketch together, and I mess up, I'm messing you up, and that upsets me. Right. You know, I don't want to be responsible for other people. It's just me. During your special, do you uh, do you ever uh, did you fuck up and go take that back? Let's Mm-mm. do that again. No. It was straight. It was straight hour. Yeah. Of perfect. You didn't do it twice. In one you night? do it twice. You do. Yeah. You do two shows. And the funny thing was, uh, usually the first show was bad. Because you're nervous, you're not nervous because the cameras are there. It's a little bit different. You want to get it right. You're not thinking like, let's just do the show. You want to do the show right. So you go out and you're a little sweaty. You might mess things up. You just they a little, have to cut powder, stiff. cut powder. A little so occasionally, they'll be like, let's get some makeup on this guy. Let's cut for a second. Sometimes they just let you go sweaty because they're like, we don't want to stop him. Let's just get it in the can because there are plenty of specials out there where people are sweaty. Uh, they just let you do it. And then the second one, you're like, you feel more comfortable. So you, know you did it's it twice. Done. The first one wasn't great? No. Usually the first one isn't great, but that, I hate that so much. that The whole three years I was developing this new one, I was just thinking about that first, that first run. That I want that first run to be great. And like it wasn't. Mentally preparing for it. No, it was. Oh, I what? went out and I killed it. Like I came off stage, hugged my manager, was like, I finally did it. I finally had the first taping be great. Do I even go out for the second one? I'm like, maybe I just go out and screw around. And then it's the same lighting, same the lighting, same thing, same, it's same place, same everything. And then they come back and they go, uh, they go, uh, John Mulaney and Nick Kroll are in the crowd to see you tonight for the for the late <laughs> show. And I'm like, I'm not going to blow it in front of my friends. So I go out and I have I do as well as I can. The director comes backstage. He goes, "Those were great shows. We're using the second one." And I go, "What do you mean? The first one was one of the best shows I've ever done." He goes, "We got better coverage on the second one." And you watch and both like, of them. No, I didn't watch it. I just watched the cut they did. You just watched the cut. Were you surprised at how handsome you looked? Did you, did you look like, wow, fuck, they lit me perfectly? I wasn't surprised. <laughs> I, was, I was certainly pleased. <laughs> hey, uh, did, you, uh, did people ask you about like your dating Amy Schumer? Or is that something like, I don't want to talk about that shit. I don't like, to, I mean, it's five years ago. She's not I don't really know anything the... about it. I didn't even know you dated Amy Schumer until I lo- looked it up. Yeah, I mean, it was a long time ago. People used to bring it up all the time. Yeah. Like people used to, I couldn't do a show without someone yelling it at me, right. or they would yell it at her on stage. Are you and friends still? Been, no, not friends. No. So it didn't end well. It ended okay, but then over time, like you're in the same industry, you know, we had to go like a, do like a, a giant tour together, and it was just like it, nothing happened. There wasn't any like incident. It was just like I don't need to be friends with my exes. You See, know? that's that's a, that's a tricky subject because you know you say that and. I am. There's some girls that I was like, "Hey, I'd love to have you in my life." If it, you know, it's not like you say that before. Like you're prefacing it with like, "Hey, if this doesn't work out, let's be friends." But it's almost like I, I do become friends with some of my exes, and they're still in my life. Some of them, they're they're now married, and their husbands are like, "No, I know you had feelings for him like that, and I don't want to see that guy." Yeah, nothing against him. Don't, and I understand it. But for you, once a relationship's over, you're done. Hopefully, you know, and it takes a while to get to that point. You know, Amy and I, when we were together, we would break up and then you'd see her that night at the comedy cellar and it's like, well, uh, maybe a week of this and then we're getting back together. You just can't avoid it. Right. But now we're on opposite sides of the country. We don't see each other. We don't talk. Uh, then it becomes, becomes easy. Does she ever tweet you? Does she ever say, funny special, congratulations? No. Would, would, would that make you feel good or would you just don't care? Don't care. You just don't care. It doesn't affect you. You're unaffected by other people's perception of you. You really are. At this point, yeah. I mean, sometimes it makes me happy to hear good things. But if someone, if if you if the love really affects you, the hate's going to affect you too. And I get a lot of hate. 
and I can't let that. What happen. bothers you? What's the only thing that bothers you where you're like, you want to tweet back? You want to reply back to some guy who wrote an article and you want to say, you're fucking wrong. You're missing the point. You're missing the boat. You didn't get the joke, you fucking idiot. Do you think that ever? No, because if someone's totally dismissive, then I'm like, you're wrong. If someone's like, I saw every punchline coming, I'm like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Uh, but if someone's like, I love you, I'm your biggest fan, that one joke was pretty weak. I'd be like, oh, was it? I would question that one joke. And sometimes I'm like, no, you're wrong. That joke is great. Uh, but no, I don't tweet back to anybody. Never. Really? Unless it's like, I mean, unless it's a positive tweet. Like someone was like, here's my impression of every Anthony Jeselnik joke. Uh, I'm going to seriously consider the the, the uh, moral problems in society. Just kidding. I jizzed in a baby carcass. And I just tweeted that. And I was like, people who don't like my comedy, summing up my comedy is my favorite thing ever. Like I made it a positive thing. But Turn I like it into a positive. Exactly. It's like, because if you, I, a lot of times on Twitter, I don't know if you do this. If I rip on, if someone's like, I hate your comedy and I'm like, well, fuck you. You don't have a sense of humor. Then my fans are going to pile on them. And I don't want that. I don't like feeling like a bully on Twitter right. by setting off your fans on someone who doesn't really deserve it. So, and I, I just I, immediately block. I like to mute. Blocking is like, blocking is a harsh move. And I block people. But it's aggressive. So what is mute? Mute, you just can't see their posts. Mute, you can't see, and they don't know. Oh, So they can keep tweeting at you. I've been blocking the shit out of people. But mostly it's for like, I'll say something like, and then they'll go, oh, you a fucking Hillary supporter? Oh, you're a fucking loot, you know, you fucking bandwagon, fucking liberal piece of shit. You live in a bubble actor. I'm like, and I get enraged. I'm like, I didn't say anything fucking political. You motherfucking block. Mm -hmm. Mute. Mute. It's so much you better. Motherfucking because then they mute. keep on screaming in the void, and that you have, you have no idea. It's so peaceful. Why won't he respond? Yeah, this is great. Don't you feel like you could talk to Anthony forever? Forever. This is easy. Yeah, I decided to drive here, dude. Uh, can I ask you this for those people who haven't seen the special? And look, I always speak my mind. I hate a lot of movies, and I always say when I don't like something. I I really love the special. I really think it's really funny. It made me laugh. I tell the jokes. Can you give me two jokes from the special? Can I can I pick them? Sure. I want you to do the Alzheimer's joke first. Okay. Let's see if I can remember. Let's see if I can get this. Okay. One of my next door neighbors is a 90-year-old man suffering from Alzheimer's. And every single morning at 9 a.m., he knocks on my door and he asks me if I have seen his wife. Which means... That every single morning at 9 a.m., I have to explain to a 90-year-old man suffering from Alzheimer's that his wife has been dead for quite some time. Now, I have thought about moving. I have thought about just not opening my door in the morning. But to be honest, it's worth it just to see the smile on his face. It took me 17 years to write an Alzheimer's joke. Like I, I tried for it was like my grandfather is suffering from Alzheimer's. He's ninety three years old, and there's not one person laughing louder than I am. Every people who have Alzheimer's, people in the family, tell me that like when you started the joke, I was like, oh no, he's finally crossing a line for me. And then no they hear it and they're like, way. that's that. Thank you. They're What's like, thank the you, best Pastor. call you've ever received? Like the best call from? Wasn't uh, there a phone call you received the best phone call? You set me. Are you trying to set me up for one of my own jokes with this way? You're going to have to do a better job. Because All right. Well, how does it, well, what's the joke? Oh, uh, uh, life can be funny sometimes, right? Like, 
I can't get into details right now, but earlier this week, I received the single greatest phone call of my life. And then just five minutes later, I got another phone call telling me that my dad is in the hospital. I said, yeah, I just heard. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. Those two jokes that you had me tell, those are the two (laughs) jokes in my act that when I do the setup, the entire audience gets dead quiet. Because when I say the when I say the word Alzheimer's in the beginning, everyone gets quiet. Everyone's so like, complete, you could hear a pin drop. And you keep repeating it. And when You're I 70 year old man. But the first time you they say they're like, oh shit, this is Alzheimer's. Like all it's a serious it's He's a word. Going there. But when I say uh, I got the greatest phone call of my life, they assume industry. They assume I have an announcement about some great thing I got that everyone gets quiet for that. But I love, <laughs> I love when the audience is just like <gasps> What? What? And they believe me. What I love is that the joke at the end, your 15 minute, they've written about it, the the abortion joke, and you guys will watch the Netflix special. It's, it's, it's the, the punchline at the end fucking just slayed me. It's so simple. You're just not looking for it. You, you can't guess it. Watch the Netflix special, Fire on the Maternity Ward. Anthony Jeselnik is my guest. Dude, thanks for coming. Thanks for allowing me to be inside of you. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, being inside me. All right. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.